Well, are you familiar with Mount Rushmore? Are you familiar with Mount Rushmore, the famous landmark that has the pictures of four great presidents in U.S. history, Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, and Teddy Roosevelt? Well, nowadays, people will sometimes talk about their Mount Rushmore in relationship to maybe a, a select group of individuals who stood out, right? You might say, this is my Mount Rushmore of the, of the greatest writers of all time, my Mount Rushmore of the, of the best generals or poets or whatever it might be, quarterbacks, you know, this is my Mount Rushmore. Now, if you did a Mount Rushmore of biblical characters apart from God, I think anybody who knows their Bible reasonably well would have to put Moses on that Mount Rushmore. Would you agree? I mean, Moses, I just think, would have to be on there. It's hard to overemphasize how important Moses is in the story of the Bible. We've been talking about him in the book of Exodus. He delivers Israel out of Egypt. He mediates the Ten Commandments from God. He led, led them through the wilderness and to the edge of the promised land. He writes the first five books of the Bible. He was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 34, 10, and 12 says, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. The New Testament speaks of Moses more than any other Old Testament character. Do we get an idea of how important Moses was? And I thought this is a little bit of a side note here with all the history and U.S., uh, the birth of our nation. Moses has also cast a big shadow on our country. Deuteronomy, which he wrote, is the most cited book. When you look at the writings of the founders, Deuteronomy is what they quote the most. Did you know that? Many great figures in American history have been called Moses for the different ways that they brought liberation to our land. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, all called Moses. And you go to the House of Representatives, there are 23 marbles of relief of famous lawgivers throughout world history, including Moses. But what's fascinating is that the other 22 lawgivers all turn in toward Moses, showing his superiority as a lawgiver. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? So with all this about Moses and all the epicness of this man and his significance and his life, today we cover one of the most overlooked, but I think one of the most significant parts of Moses' story. And here we see perhaps the deepest glimpse into the heart of this man. What made Moses who Moses was? And I hope that we'll not only see just an incredible passage, but his heart will overflow into our hearts as well. We're going to see here Moses' intercession as he rescues wayward sinful Israel from destruction. God renews their covenant with them. And also, we're going to see his heart 
and what we have to learn from him. In particular, his heart for prayer and how much we can learn from Moses' example. So let me invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 32 as we continue our series on this wonderful book. Last time we covered the Exodus itself as Israel left Egypt, miraculously crossed the Red Sea. God destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea there. But now I'm going to skip ahead to Exodus 32. But let me just briefly share what happens in between. So after they leave uh, Egypt and they're going into the desert, God brings them to Sinai where he gives them the Ten Commandments, which is their covenant between God and Israel. And then in Exodus 24, Israel uh, affirms his covenant. They swear loyalty to the Lord. Keep that in mind. Okay, they affirm this covenant that they're making with God. Some people call this the old covenant. Some people call it the Mosaic covenant because of Moses' pivotal role. And then in Exodus 25 and following, God gives instructions for the nation of Israel to construct a tabernacle so that his presence will dwell with them. So, so far, everything is looking just peachy keen, right? Well, buckle up. <laughs> buckle up because it is going to be a wild roller coaster ride in these three chapters that we're going to cover here. And it starts off with Israel making a golden calf. Israel making a golden calf. Everybody there, Exodus chapter 32. Let's read verses 1 to 6 together. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So while Moses is up on the mountain, the people grow impatient and urge Moses' brother Aaron to make an idol. Aaron agrees and he makes what? A golden calf. You say, why would he make a golden calf? Well, it was very common in ancient Egypt and Canaan for them to make bovine idols, right? They would make idols representing either a cow or a bull. And so if this calf was representative of a female, it might symbolize fertility. If this calf was a male, the ox would symbolize fertility, perhaps also military power. Regardless of what it symbolized, this was a complete, unmitigated, categorical, spiritual disaster. 
that they were making a golden calf. The whole purpose of the Exodus was that God was going to deliver Israel and bring himself glory, right? Bringing glory to the Lord. And now they're making an idol with their own hands to bring glory to that. The whole point, the whole purpose of Exodus was at stake here. Do you see that? Well, it's about to get worse. Aaron makes an altar. He declares a feast to the Lord. So they're trying to blend true worship of God with these pagan practices and so forth. And it's not going to work that way. Then things really hit rock bottom. It says, after eating and drinking, they went out to play. They weren't playing horseshoes. More than likely, that refers to sexual immorality. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, pagan worship is often connected to sexual immorality. It was just a fixture of pagan worship. So when you take all of this together, this is the picture, right? It's, it's, it's unbelievable. God had just delivered Israel. He enriched them with plunder. From, remember, Egypt were like, hey, on your way out, here's our gold and silver and so forth. They, they're plundering Egypt. He established a covenant with them, and he was leading them to the promised land. But about 40 days later, after swearing covenant loyalty, here they are, making an idol, worshiping it, engaging in sexual immorality. They're rejecting the Lord. This is a rejection of the Lord. And I think it's the worst moment in Israel's history, is what we're reading about right now. And it was clearly... Aaron's worst moment. <laughs> Moses' brother, right? The high priest of the people. He goes along with their request to make an idol. And yeah, he might have been outnumbered in terms of being pressured and so forth, but he didn't have to do it. And then he kind of gets swept up in it and declares this festival to the Lord. And he never confesses his wrongdoing. If you drop down in verse 24, Aaron says, So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I mean, if it wasn't such a sad moment, it's kind of funny. Like, here, I just happened to get this gold. I threw it in an oven, and whoa, look, look at what just came out, a golden calf. He forgets to tell how he actually made the calf. So although the incident was Israel's worst and Aaron's worst, I believe this is going to be Moses' best moment. Moses' best moment. So let's go to the second part. Moses intercedes for Israel. Moses intercedes for Israel. Verses 7 to 14. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring. Then they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So the Lord informs Moses about everything that's taking place down there at the foot of the mountain. All right. So right away, they turn from their covenant loyalty, abandon the Lord who brought them out of slavery, was leading them to the promised land. And and his desire, Lord, the Lord shares, is going to destroy the nation and make a great nation out of Moses. Now, God had promised Abraham long ago to, bring, to multiply his descendants. Well, Moses was a descendant of Abraham, so technically speaking, this was still keeping the promise to Abraham, right? But it was going to be a change. And I need to stress something here, that... Israel is in a really perilous condition. I don't think this is a bluff by God. He's not bluffing here. He is just about to wipe them out. Their offense was so vile, so repugnant to the Lord that he is just about to wipe them out. And I believe he would have done so, but Moses declines here. And instead, Moses steps forward as the mediator and Moses really shines forth in, his, in this situation here. And Moses reminds the Lord about three essential truths. Did you catch them there in the passage? First, Israel's God's people whom he delivered from Egypt. Second, the Egyptians will mock the Lord if he destroys Israel after delivering them. And then third, the Lord had made that covenant with Abraham to multiply his descendants and give them the promised land. And so as a result, the Lord relents from bringing this disaster. But Moses was the one who interceded here. They were going to be destroyed until Moses steps forward. Commenting later on the passage, Psalm 106 verse 23 says, Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So judgment was averted here. But the relationship has not been restored between the Lord and Israel. And so let me just kind of summarize briefly what happens in the rest of chapter 32. Moses comes down from the top of the mountain. He witnesses the awful scene before him. He literally takes the Ten Commandments written on the two tablets and he throws them down on the ground to symbolize that the covenant had been smashed and had been destroyed. Moses offers the offenders an opportunity to repent, to turn from their idolatry, to turn from their sexual immorality, 
Some refuse, and so Moses orders the Levites to stop the rebellion, and 3,000 Israelites die. Finally, then, Moses destroys the golden calf. As we turn to chapter 33, God tells Moses that he's, he's going to bless them as they go into the land of Canaan. They will still receive the promised land, but he is not going to go with them. And that news stirs Israel to repentance. And praise God, this is a great moment for Israel because they actually do seem to be genuine. He, they lay aside their ornaments. Remember, their ornaments is what they made the golden calf of, still probably having some, some idolatrous connotations there. They lay those things down. They seem to be genuine and saying, we're going to seek the Lord from here on. There seems to be a genuine repentance, and they want God's presence. They're not just like, hey, you know, we don't care if you go, Lord, just as long as you give us that real estate, right? No, they want the Lord's presence with them. Once again, Moses intercedes to the Lord, and once again, the Lord grants Moses' request and agrees to go with Israel. Now we come to the final part of our passage. God reveals his glory to Moses. God reveals his glory to Moses. Let's read verses 18 to 23, chapter 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you, will stand, you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses, he asked to see God's glory. This is really interesting because, I mean, God had shown his glory to the Israelites several times so far. You know, so this wasn't the first time this has happened. But Moses yearns for a greater revelation. I think that's wonderful. This man who knew God probably better than anybody else was the more he knew him, the more he wanted to know of him, right? He doesn't reach a place of saying, you know what? I've kind of come to a place in my journey with God where I feel pretty content, right? You don't see that with, with Moses, do you? You see someone who says, boy, I've come to know God so well in my life. You know what that does for me? It makes me just want to know him all the more. Amen? We shouldn't reach a place where we're like, you know, I think I know the Bible reasonably well, and I have kind of a prayer life, and I'm, I'm just kind of content to stay where I'm at. That's, that's not the heart of someone who's seeking after God. Amen? They want more and more and more of the Lord, and that's what's so great about God, that the more you want of him, he will continue to pour out his presence, and he will give you his glory. Now, in response, God says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And I'm going to tell you my name, which is the Lord. And then it's interesting. He says, I'm going to show you the back of my glory. The back of my glory. What is that about? Well, God doesn't have a backside, per se. So he's not talking about that. What he's talking about is, is he's saying, I'm going to give you a fraction of my glory. 
Because you can't take it all, Moses. If I showed you it all, what would happen to you? You die. <laughs> so I don't think you want that, do you? I'm going to give you some of it. I was thinking about how analogy, you know, if you're ever walking outside and, and you come up on a big, huge spotlight, and, and unless you have, you know, some problems, no one goes up to a spotlight with their eyes wide open, right, and stares into it. You're like this, okay, right? You, you see some of it, but you can't take it all in, can you? And that's what Moses is saying. And God is saying to Moses, I should say, I'll give you some. I'm going to give you a greater revelation, but it's still just the back of my glory. It's still just a fraction. By the way, just before moving on, I need to point out that Moses' experience here, some take it, you know, maybe just, well, this is just Moses' private experience, whatever. Yeah, there's probably part of that. But keep in mind here, he's the mediator between God and Israel. So I think he's also wanting confidence that God is going to forgive the nation. He's going to move forward with them, and he's going to dwell in their midst. I think it's kind of an assurance of the fractured relationship that has taken place. This is Moses' way of just saying, Lord, I need an assurance here. God's going to do it. Let's turn over to chapter 34. As we read this incredible moment, verses 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the, stab the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there, there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up, to Mount, went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two, stab, two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a gracious, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. What a passage. So before God reveals himself, Moses takes out these two stone tablets, cuts them out, and then when God reveals himself, he writes those words again on the two tablets. Then he goes up to Sinai. God proclaims his name to him, passes before him, and then declares this full picture of who God is, unveiling these uh, different attributes of God, 13 different attributes of God. What a beautiful picture, isn't it, of God that we see in this passage. You could do whole sermons on all these different attributes. But I, what I want to draw from it today, just two things about this picture we see of God. And they, the, the picture that's unveiled here is how 
God is both a God of justice and mercy. He is a God of justice and mercy. Both of them are stressed. He's just, right? Notice how it's said there. He will not clear the guilty. God does not look past sin, does he? I know we like to make gods in our own image who will somehow look past our sin, who don't care that we sin, who will just somehow will make a God up and says, well, he knows how I am and he will be fine with it. All of humanity loves to create a God who doesn't care about sin because we're sinners, right? It's just like a thief. Thieves don't naturally just go find police officers, do they? No. Same with us. But God is perfectly just. God is perfectly just. No unrighteousness in God. But God is also merciful. The first words that God says there, that he is merciful and gracious, goes on to say how he is uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Just kind of piling up ways, different ways that we fall short of what God tells us to do. But God pardons it. No matter how grievous the sin, no matter how frequent the sin, God pardons all of it when we are repentant. And of course, that's what he's doing here. God is doing this right here. He forgives Israel despite everything that just happened. He's going to renew the covenant and he is going to dwell in their midst. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, the tabernacle. Now, I know for some of you might think, man, that doesn't sound very interesting. Talk about the tabernacle. It's going to be interesting. God has some amazing things that we're going to see when we talk about the tabernacle. Before moving on, just really quickly, sometimes people get, uh, bring up the fact that it says there that God visits the iniquity of the parents on their children to the third and fourth generation. That doesn't seem fair. Well, we need to keep all of Scripture in mind, don't we, whenever looking at a passage? And Scripture is very clear in other places that God does not directly pass on punishment to children for what parents have done. Right? We each stand accountable to God before what we have done. So there's not that direct punishment. But we all know that there is indirect repercussions, right? And it does ripple down to our descendants. And I also want you to see, though, that even in the midst of that, it talks about God's justice to the third and fourth generation. His graciousness and his mercy extends to the thousandth generation. Wow, that's who God is. What a picture. As we close, let me just ask a couple of questions. Is that your view of God? Do you embrace that? Just that all-consuming vision of God that we see here, a God of perfect justice and a God of perfect mercy because it dramatically affects how you live. This isn't just a theology lesson. This affects how you live. You see, if you think God is perfectly just, then you will not excuse sin in your life. You will fight sinful habits. 
You will want to obey God. You'll not grow apathetic towards your sin, but want to continue to seek after the Lord. We will confess when we fall short. Let me ask you a question, rhetorical question. When is the last time that you were broken? I mean genuinely broken about your sin before God. If we have a strong view of the justice of God, realize who we are. All of us are sinners. We need to be broken about our sin. Amen? It affects how we live. But also God is a God of mercy. He is a God of mercy. And because he is, we receive it fully. So we don't have to go around punishing ourselves for things that we have done in the past. We confess it to God and we receive full pardon. Amen? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to live with regret and defeat. God is a God of mercy. And you know what? We should also abundantly pardon and show mercy to those around us. Because we have been given so much mercy. Shouldn't live our lives constantly ready to tear someone's head off because they do something small. We should be abundant in mercy because God has given us so much mercy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me also ask us this morning to consider Moses' prayer life. What I'm focusing on here is the pattern and the passion of his prayer. By pattern, notice that Moses' prayers are filled with God's word. Did you notice that there? He prays the Lord's promises back to him. Likewise, we should use scripture as prayers to God. God puts prayers in Scripture like the Psalms and the Lord's prayers and the prayers of Paul so that we will pray them back to God. They're there for us to use and to emulate. I put some of the prayers of Paul on a handout out there. I know that's something maybe we're not as familiar with as the Lord's prayers and the Psalms, but we should be taking in God's word and then we pray, not just, okay, Lord, I'm not sure what to say here, but like, Go to scripture and use God's word and reflect it back to him just like Moses did. And then press into God with his own words. Not out of a sense of arrogance, but of a deep trust and reverence for his own words that he gave to his people to use back to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great uh, English pastor in the mid-20th century. He made a study of great people of prayer through the centuries, and he writes these words. I encourage you to listen. He says, I commend to you the reading of biographies of men who have been used by God in the church throughout the centuries, especially in revival. And you will find this same holy boldness, this argumentation, this reasoning, this putting the case to God, pleading to his own promises. Oh, that is the whole secret of prayer, I sometimes think. Thomas Goodwin, who was a Puritan, uses a wonderful term. He says, sue him for it. 
Sue him for it. Do not leave him alone. Pester him, as it were, with his own promise. Quote the scripture to him. And you know, God delights to hear us doing it as a father likes to see this element in his own child who has obviously been listening to what his father has been saying. So like Moses, let's pray God's word back to him. I know that's something I want to grow with, just using God's word as we pray to him, not just our own thoughts and imaginations, but using the trust the trusty word of God. And then also notice Moses' passion. He loved his fellow Israelites despite their sin. I mean, he still might be smelling the, 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 the fumes from the golden calf that he burned up. That might still be in the air. Those images that he saw when he went down the mountain surely ingrained in his mind but he's praying with passion for his fellow Israelites. In fact, Moses, we didn't read it, but he actually asked God, blot me out of the book of life so that they are spared. God denied his request because there was one coming later. But you see his passion. He said, well, that's Moses. I'm glad we got people like Moses around. I am too. But I think that's for you and I as well. When you come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, great man of God, but he also mentions a co-worker, a no-name, a guy named Epaphras. Who's Epaphras, right? But he was a great man of God. He says in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras was struggling for them in prayer. The word struggling there in the Greek language is agonizomai. It's where we get our English word, agonize. He was agonizing over his brothers and sisters in prayer, laboring for them. Wanting to see them grow in Christ's likeness. Oh, I think that's something we can take away from this passage. The passion to pray. Not just for ourselves. We're usually pretty passionate about praying for ourselves, right? And maybe we'll extend that out to praying for our family. But maybe God this morning wants to challenge us. To pray beyond that circle. Amen? To include some other Christians in our church. Someone in your Sunday school class. Or maybe your neighbors to come to know Christ. But to have a passion for prayer. If you're lacking it this morning, ask God for it. He will give it. And then just lastly, I want to speak about Moses and Jesus. Moses is remarkable. He's a remarkable mediator. He rescued the, the nation of Israel from destruction. He helps renew the covenant between God and Israel. He was willing to lay down his life for his people. Moses was great. But Jesus is greater. Amen. Hebrews 3.1-3 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is greater than Moses. Say, how so? Moses was just a man. Jesus was a man, but he was also fully God. Moses established the old covenant, which was remarkable and wonderful in great ways. But Jesus comes along and establishes the new covenant, which made the old covenant obsolete. Moses was a great man, but he was a sinner. He murdered someone even before God called him to this task. Even after all this and seeing God's face to, uh, face to face and so forth, this close relationship, he still sinned and God said, you're not going in the promised land. Jesus was sinless. And so because Jesus is fully God and sinless, he too offered to lay down his life. And God accepted that sacrifice. Because that sacrifice pays for the sins of the world. No one else was sinless, and no one else is God in human flesh. Jesus is, and that's why he is the true and the ultimate and final mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins, your sins, personally? Do you embrace him as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in his promises? If so, you can have peace with God and the promise of eternal life. That is the one we go to. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. Thank you for your work. Thank you for what you have done on our behalf as a greater Moses, suffering for the sins of the world so that we could be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that gospel message would be received by someone today perhaps who's never believed it, never embraced Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Help them to see that here this morning, Lord. Holy Spirit, help them to see that you are a God of justice and a God of mercy, and it meets together at the cross. Pray that for someone here today, Lord, this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us as we've heard this message about Moses. Lord, help us to draw encouragement from his life, his passion for prayer, how he prays your words, and his passion to see others come to know you and to walk deeply with you. Lord, forgive us for praying too much about ourselves to the neglect of a passionate pursuit of praying for others. Lord, we thank you for this time together in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen.